Hi, everybody. Welcome to Busy Living So Bar. Busy Living So Bar. Busy Living So Bar. And we are in episode 191. I can't even believe that there's 191 episodes. Mm -hmm. And I'm very excited to have Shelby John here. Hi, Shelby. Hey there. I love your jingle. Super fun. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for reaching out to me. You're welcome. I love your show. I like to, I love listening to any sober women and just women in general who are doing their thing. You know, I just think it's so amazing what we can do when we really, um, when we do get sober and we start to learn how to live life on life's terms and put our foot in front of the other. And we just don't know where life's going to lead us. It's, I feel, I find it very amazing to listen to other people's stories and their experience, strength and hope. So thanks for having me. So that is like a perfect lead-in. So will you tell us your story of experience, strength, and hope, please? I sure will. So um, I always say, and I introduce myself, I'm Shelby, I'm an alcoholic. I got sober in AA. My sobriety date is July, July 1st, 2002. Um, and I have chosen not to take a drink one day at a time since then. And um, usually how I introduce myself is I say, you know, this morning when I woke up, I got, I asked my God to help me not take a drink today. And tonight when I get sober, I'll say, thanks for helping me keep me sober. And I do that every day because that's what I was taught to do when I got here. And for me, it was really important to learn how to follow directions. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I thought I was a very disciplined person. I had, was educated. I had, a, um, you know, I was married. I was, had a master's degree, um, raging addiction. And I thought I had all my, myself together. What I didn't realize at all was I was just a scared little girl who didn't have any discipline. Um, and I learned that here in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and um, the women who came around me to teach me how my alcoholism was not the glue that was keeping me together like I thought, you know, but really the thing that was tearing me apart. And so I, I guess what I was like, I just heard this recently on another podcast, another a gentleman, an older gentleman was sharing and he was saying, he hears people say things like what it was like, what, what happened to, and what it's like now. And that little nuance of the it, I didn't ever pick it up before, but he was really honing in on that and saying, you know, the big book doesn't say that. It says what I was like, yeah. what happened to me and what I'm like today. And I, I don't, that really hit me and it stuck with me for the last week or so. So I will say what I was like was, um, you know, probably very similar to most of the women that you talk to, or maybe yourself included. It just, you know, I, I was a scared little girl who never felt like I was enough, never pretty enough, smart enough, and whatever enough for whatever group or situation I was in. Um, I don't know why I was like that. I came from a loving home. Um, there was no real, you know, identified alcoholism in my family. Um, and, um, you know, I had a regular childhood. We went to summer camp and we had a pool and we were privately educated. Like, I don't, you know, so the only thing I can say is that I have a genetic malfunction that makes my body process alcohol differently than others. And, um, that became the coping skill that I use. Um, so, uh, what happened to me was I kind of, you know, drank alcoholically. <laughs> I was a late bloomer. I didn't really drink that much in high school. My parents were rather strict. I, they had rules. I was scared of them. So I kind of followed them. And I picked up some stuff, you know, a little bit later, like my senior year and then into college. And that's when my addiction really took off. Um, I was really depressive type too. I didn't get that at the time. I didn't know anything about 
uh, real mental health stuff, but um, I, you know, was suicidal. I had um, two suicide attempts. You know, I was mm-hmm. I, the first one I did very much alone in my college dorm room. Nobody knew. Um, but that's how I lived. You know, and I thought that was sort of normal. I didn't really know. Uh, I knew I was crazy, but I didn't know it was had anything to do with alcohol. Um, and, you know, so I, you know, I, I just went through school and I did my thing. I was dating my high school sweetheart who were now married for 21 years, 21, 22 years, maybe we got married in 1998, whatever that is. <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, we, he had to deal with the wreckage of all of that as well. I kind of took him as my favorite prisoner and carried him along through that addiction. And, you know, he was, um, he was the best thing that happened to me and he was the, probably the only thing that helped save my life. So um, that's what it was like. You know, at the end of my drinking, I was desperate. I was overwhelmed. I was depressed. I was, you know, um, again, I think I knew I was, something was wrong. I lied to my therapist. You know, I didn't, you know, it doesn't help when you don't tell the truth. You know, when you go to therapy, you should really tell the truth because otherwise you don't get better. And, um, I remember the last one I saw, it was a year before I got sober, I had that second attempt. And when we called and told her I was in the hospital, I think she was, she was like subtract, you know? And I feel like your therapist should know like that you're on the edge, <laughs> but she didn't. So, um, I can't hear you by the way. I'm having talked. Oh, oh okay. You were laughing. I just wanted to make sure it was, the sound was still on. So, um, that's what happened at the end. I was just really desperate. I was just desperate for a change, desperate for a relief, desperate to just not be living that life anymore. And, um, I really didn't have any tools. I also feel like a lot of that stuff that was going on in my younger days, that, that not enoughism, um, that discontent, that, um, irritability was really just anxiety. Um, but we didn't really call it that back then. So I didn't know what that was. Um, I know kind of now looking back and as I've done my own work. Um, and so what happened was, you know, like a good alcoholic, I had some pretty amazing, uh, legal consequences right at the end of my drinking. I was created out of a professional environment that, um, a conference I was attending as a direct result of my drinking. Um, and that was really, should have been a big um, red flag, right? And the clue and a big eye opener and like, oh, okay, there's something wrong. This is the thing. And yet um, for me, it, it wasn't, it wasn't enough. Um, I spent like about an hour of an interrogation situation with a police officer explaining why I wasn't drunk and how I knew I wasn't drunk and I know my limits and all the things. So when I watched that interrogation video after I was sober for a little while, not very long, it was very early. Uh, it was really shocking to see that part, but it was also really helpful because it really helped me clue into the fact that I was really not well. Um, I wasn't well at all. (laughs) And so luckily for me, you know, I had great people in my life to help walk me through that. I went to treatment and, um, you know, I spent the first two weeks in that treatment center trying to convince them that I didn't really belong there and somebody was going to come get me. And, um, I kept saying that my people, my family's going to come get me. I don't belong here. And nobody came to get me. And, you know, when I got out of that treatment center, I kind of got busy. I did what I was told. I got, like I said, I got sober in AA. I always like to say that to people I work with too, that, that AA is not the only way to get sober. I was told that in the beginning, it's just the way I know how. And so I'm really respectful of that. And however, other people get to the, get to recovery, whatever that looks like for you, whether it's church or 
spirituality, you know, whether it's some, whatever the way, white knuckling it, if it works for you and it keeps you sober and you have that peace and joy on the inside that you want, then it's working for you. So um, I personally think 12 step programs are really helpful. The fellowship that rose up around me was extremely helpful. Um, the things that I learned through working the steps was extremely healing and helpful. Um, and I still utilize that, that, that program today in my life. Um, so that's what I did. I mean, I just got busy. It took me a long time to get it. I was not a, um, I was like a, not a sometimes quickly person, you know, um, I spent a lot of years, probably 18 months or more saying to my sponsor, you know, I don't really think I belong here. I'm not an alcoholic. And you know, she would just gently remind me like, let's look at your track record. You know, let's go back and see. Cause I didn't have a whole long list of, um, Thing of, of consequences. The woman that I was listening to on your show talked about that the other day. I think it was last week or whenever you did your last show. And she said, you know, she didn't have a lot of nevers yet or not yet. And I felt that way too. Like I never got a DUI. <clears throat> I didn't have a lot of other, con I mean, I did have some and the ones I had were kind of serious, but, um, but I didn't have a whole lot of like the quote unquote normal drinking consequences. Most of it was emotional. Most of it was familial, like a lot of embarrassment, a lot of um, despair for my husband, you know, sitting and going to company functions and being very embarrassing, you know, and having to be lectured by my mother before we went to anything that like, you know, how to behave as a 27 year old or whatever. Um, so anyway, I, um, that's how, that's what happened for me. Um, and then I just kind of got busy. I started living my life on life's terms, doing the sober thing. I had three kids in four years. I was sober. I was sober for six months when I got pregnant the first time. I don't really recommend that. That's just what happened for me. And then I had three kids in four years, which, um, is, you know, a whole nother story. So <laughs> did I. So did I. So now I get to interrupt you. It was so okay. funny because people sometimes think they're like, oh my God, she's not talking. Why? And, and I'm one of those people who I, I listen to enough podcasts where the people interrupt and then you're like, wait a minute, I wanted to hear what she was saying. So I wanted to get you to this point. So thank you. And thank you. Cause I did want to hear you. And there's a couple things that you brought up that I want to circle back to. One of those being the checklist you mentioned, cause when we're growing up, we're like, wait a minute, I did what I was supposed to, like if there were a boardroom in the sky, right? And I did what I was supposed to do. I graduated from high school. I had, I went to college. I got okay grades, good grades, whatever they were, but I like, I could check the box. <laughs> I had the appropriate boyfriend that looked okay on my arm when I went to social functions, check. So we have this checklist that we look at in life that I don't know who instilled it in us. I don't know. I, I don't want to blame all the mothers out there in the universe because that's not fair. But I think that there is that internal checklist that we have. And we're like, well, wait a minute. I can check all those things, but I'm still empty. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Totally. And the idea of what an alcoholic is in society, and unfortunately, it's still like this a little bit today, right? It hasn't mm -hmm. got, that's why Busy Living Sober is here. It's because I can't stand the shame and everything else that goes with it. Right. But mm -hmm. you're like, I'm not an alcoholic. Like that's supposed to be somebody that's underneath a bridge with a bottle in a bag, a pink bag, right? I, they don't live in a house with a loving spouse or in a, in a dorm room or whatever, or with parents that look pretty normal. We belong to whatever. We, we're members of the community and I'm not supposed to be a drunk, right? Right. 
Totally, totally. And I feel like that's, that's exactly the checklist that I, that I went through in my life. You know, I married the right guy. We owned a home. We had two cars. I had a respectable job. You know, I was a social worker in the, in my community. Um, most of the people in my life, I mean, all of the people in my life and all my family are very heavy drinkers. You know, they enjoy alcohol and they are allowed to do that in their own way. You know, so I was surrounded by people who like in uh, probably most social settings in, in today's world, like where drinking is just the thing, you know, and I'm not going to say it was alcoholic or not. I, that's none of my business, but it was definitely a present. It was a present thing in all of our life. So for me, you know, yes, I can look back now and see how I stood out. Um, that that was not normal drinking. And I was also taught in treatment, you know, early on too, that, you know, it, it's not about how much we drank. It's about what we felt like or what happened to us when we do. And so that was a huge distinguishing factor for me because I wasn't like necessarily a daily drinker towards the end. It was probably getting close, but I didn't have a lot of those isms, like maybe on the 20 questions or something, you know, I probably had a lot of them, but like, it wasn't the, the low bottom stuff, you know, if we're going to go, go there. And so, but it's the, what happened to me on the inside, how I was feeling, how I was living on the inside. You know, I couldn't have conversations with people outside of my mouth. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't have appropriate relationships and talk in a normal way where one person talks and you respond and then you express a feeling and then you, you know, you cry and then someone consoles. you know, like there was none of that. I couldn't accept a compliment. I couldn't, um, I just couldn't be, I just didn't have any of those life skills, emotional life skills. Um, and that's what makes me different than others. And I love that because I think there's so many people that are out there, so many women, especially that are out there on the cusp, right? Mm -hmm. They think, oh my gosh, wait a minute. I'm not like, I, I, I know I'm a little, I, everybody around me drinks really heavily. Like you just mm -hmm. said, everybody's getting a buzz on. I, every cocktail, I don't know how many people I go to cocktail parties with that actually aren't alcoholics. Like, right. what makes me different? I don't want to be different, but I am and it sucks. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you follow Laura McGowan, but I love her. And she wrote that book, you know, we're the luckiest and it's an incredible book. And what, what her, the thing that she says all the time is like, this is my thing. Like, I wish it wasn't my thing, but it's, it is my thing. And I, to me, picked that up and made it my own as well. Cause I'm like, this is my thing. Like I wouldn't, I always say to people, I would drink if I could, but I can't, I would, I would drink if I could because everyone else is doing it and it seems like fun and whatever, but it doesn't work for me. And I think that that's the part that we come to that it isn't for me. And I think that when you were talking about being in your dorm room and like, and like having those feelings, like, I don't want to be here anymore. I just want to go away. I just want to die. It's too hard. This is too hard. It is this it's getting sober and life is not easy. I don't know whoever told us that life was fair. I don't remember going to that, that, that class in school. <laughs> they said, Oh, everybody's going to be treated fairly because it's not true. But then getting to that place and having your like your husband there with you the whole time. I love you talking about that. And I love you talking about when you went into treatment and even trying to convince the people in treatment, like this is not, don't you realize it's me? I'm like, I, I, you know, I've got the two cars. I don't, I haven't lost anything yeah. except for me. Right. Yeah. I think we're the last to know, right? We're always the last to know. And uh, I got there and I felt like, 
I don't belong here. You know, I think like a lot of people probably say, you know, I don't belong here. There's a bunch of old men. You know, I was 20, I turned 27 in rehab. I was a young woman with a respectable career. I just couldn't control my drinking. You know, and of course we did all the controlled drinking stuff that it talks about in the big book. You know, we tried all that. Um, and it just, nothing ever really worked for me. And you know, I don't know when the switch happened. I remember sitting two weeks into that treatment center on the on my birthday, and it was a. It's a we have a beautiful facility here, and uh, like it's on the water. It's kind of like a, you know, they call it like the Hilton of rehabs or whatever. Nicole, and, are you talking about Father Martin's Ashley? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I've been, yeah, I've been there before. Yep, to visit people. I've been there. Yeah. Yeah. So it's beautiful, right? And so I sat there, and I think that was my first surrender. I called out to whatever my God was at the time whoever I could identify with just to ask for help in that alcoholic's prayer, you know, and just saying like, please help me surrender right now. And I believe that was my first surrender. And at that time, I, after that time, that was a marked change for me where I was able to, um, I was able to process the, the second two weeks of that situation a lot differently and listen to what I was being told to the best of my ability at that time, you know, like hear what they were teaching listen to people at the meetings. And um, when I got out, luckily that, 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 that stuck. <laughs> so it's interesting because you, you also mentioned that you got a degree in social work. So you've known your whole life that you wanted to help people in some way or another, correct? Mm -hmm. Correct. Yep. And so when you got sober, that social work morphed into what, what are you doing? What do you do now today? So I got a degree in social work um, and that I'm really thankful that I did actually, that wasn't my original path. I, I kind of was, I got, had a, my undergraduate degrees in psychology and sociology. So all of us were kind of against social workers. I don't know why that was a thing, but I, anyway, like I understood very quickly as, after I started working that social work was really the way to go um, um, professionally because you can get a license, you can become credentialed, you know, all the things. So I worked for the Department of Social Services for nine years. Then I left after I got pregnant with my third kid because I couldn't afford to keep working. And I stayed um, home for six years. And then I, after when my, my last kid started to get ready to go to kindergarten, I was, I had been dabbling in some things very low key. You know, there, there were a lot. So um, I, you know, started to build my own practice. I started to get credentialed. And so now, and then I built my practice to work with other um, people who you needed, who needed help, right? Like we all need. And I did a lot of my own therapy, by the way, just to clarify that I've done a lot of my own clinical work. I've done my own EMDR work. I, you know, I've you know, worked a sober program in AI as well. So I started my practice and it kind of morphed as well. You know, at the beginning I was really into the, I was trying to be a little bit more of like around that health coach realm, you know, try to bring that all in. And then I realized that I really wanted to pursue, um, getting EMDR trained because I knew the power of it. Actually, it was my husband again, you know, always the voice of reason in my life who has said, you know, like, you know, this works, like, why don't you go do this? Like, why don't you go get trained in this? You already know it works. So um, he was right. So I did that and uh, it was the best thing I could have ever done because having an EMDR, having EMDR as my skill is like, um, pretty powerful in so many ways. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's a neurologically based form of trauma treatment. And it really does. It really is what I say all the time, like the closest thing we have to a miracle for helping to reduce the emotional stimulation that we have around certain events and issues and feelings in our life. 
And um, now I have the, the privilege and honor of working with other, mostly women, I sometimes work with men, um, and, and giving them that, that gift as well. Um, so my practice kind of morphed into that. Um, and now I've stepped out into the online, into the online world around um, working with sober women um, in a different way. I was able to kind of, this is hard for me, I don't know about you, but like the anonymity piece was really challenging for me. And so I guess because I was raised in AA and I don't know, that just was a big thing in my community. So like learning how to step out, it's taken me a long time. It's taken me 18, you know, my whole time, I think, until probably last year, because I started that online practice in a different way than, it, than it's morphed into now, when I really became my authentic, I was always my authentic self, but I wasn't out necessarily all the way. I was, da I was dripping, and then I kept saying to myself, you're not, why are you fighting who you are and what you are? I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of who I am and what I am, but like, there was this part of me that kept saying, but it's anonymous, you know, we're supposed to be anonymous, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I'm not sure what happened, but I finally came to terms with that and was able to say like, look, this is who I am and what I am. And I want to show up in the way that I am the most true. And even though I'm drift feeding it to my women and some of them are picking it up, like if I can't show up and be an alcoholic and a sober woman and talk about sober living and doing sober things, then I'm not really being the most honest that I can. And so it's been really refreshing. It's been a little hard. You know, I have these, you have kids as well. I think they're a little bit. Yeah, I was just going yeah, to throw this. I was just going to throw. So there you go. You helped me out again. Thank you, Shelby. Um, so I will tell you, there's a couple, one thing I've been out since the minute I got sober uh, and a lot of people in my community, especially in 12 step rooms were like, Oh my gosh, you know, I, I, I and I don't want to say I went against the 12th tradition, but um, I've always been, I was an, I was an outdoor drunk. Um, mm -hmm. I was not in my house. I was at cocktail parties. I was the last one to leave a bar. I was at every benefit. I was at every black tie, every white tie. You know, there I was. So everybody knew kind of. So for me to come out was like a big thing because I was, and so in my community, everybody knows I'm sober. And so mm -hmm. now, and that's what's helped get busy living sober the way it is. Cause I've always been like, this is me. Mm -hmm. And. Um, I want to circle back to the kid part because I think for one, there's so many women that listen to the podcast and men, but I think that the part that you've, the one thing with like the checklist with the husband, with, I'm not an alcoholic because I have all this stuff and then being a mom. Mm -hmm. So I also too have three children. I did not get sober until my oldest was 10. Okay. So now mm -hmm. he's 24 because I'll have wow. 14 years in a couple weeks and on the 14th. But, you know, getting sober and being a mom is such a different, it's, for me, I can speak for myself. Like, for me, it was the biggest gift because I remember when my son was a freshman at college, he went to a fraternity party and he called me and he said, mom, I have to tell you the craziest thing. And I said, what? He goes, mom, these moms show up at the part at the fraternity parties and because <laughs> us moms look so good these days, right? Like we're not like old fuddy-duddy moms, right? Like we all look good, we all work out, we're all really into making sure our hair is colored, our teeth are white, we all look good, right? So no, he's like, mom, some people don't know if they're a mom or not, right? They don't know if they're a mom or if they're a student. So they tie a balloon, a yellow balloon on the mom's back. Get out. And then that's how you know it's a mom rather than another student. And so, cause mom's party, like, I'm going to be honest, if I were still drinking, 
when he was at that fraternity party, I for sure would have been like, let's go toe to toe, dude. I got it. Let's play. I know how to play quarters with the best of them. Right. Sure. But him saying to me, mom, I'm so lucky that you aren't one of those moms that shows up at the fraternity party where they have to tie a balloon to your back. Mm. That's disturbing to me, honestly, because I'm entering into that phase. My oldest is 16, she'll be a junior. So we have 16, 15 and 12. And I feel like um, the culture is so, I'm sure it was probably the same when I was a young person. Maybe I was naive, I don't know. But as the mom, as an adult and a mom and a sober woman, I look at what's happening and find it to be really disturbing. <laughs> uh, it's, it's definitely, it's, and you've been sober their whole lives, so they don't even know mm-hmm. what it's like. So my kids barely, I mean, Kent was 10, and how much do you really relate to? And my daughter Hadley was nine, and Henry was, um, and Henry was seven, but but it's so interesting because it gives your kids. I don't know. My house was kind of like this the safe spot because mm-hmm. I had no alcohol in my house. I never had any alcohol right. in my house, right? So all these right. kids would end up at being at my house, and I'd be like, "Don't you want to be where there you can at least go party?" And they'd be like, "No, we just need to hang out at, at Mrs. Chance's house." That's and awesome. because my anonymity. Um, I'll remember when my youngest one graduated from high school two and a half years ago, he's a rising junior right now. So when he starts school in just a couple weeks, but when he was at prom and he had all of his guy friends, they all were chanting busy living sofa, busy living sofa, even though they all, and they all partake in it. Right. And they all drink and they all try it. I know that they all try. It's part of growing up. Right. And I can't keep them in a little, like a little playpen in my backyard for the rest of their lives. I'd like to, right? Oh, I would have liked you so much. (laughs) But I think with having a 12-step program and having that faith, right? And having tools and having a mom that goes out and you mentioned that you you get therapy yourself. Like, I think all those things and being honest with our kids like for my kids knew from the very beginning, like mommy's got a problem with alcohol, just so you know. And you could have it too, just in case, just like if you had diabetes, right? Like, oh, you might not want to eat too much sugar because if you have too much of that, right? Right, yep. No, I agree with you. And I was out in my community and like in my family, of course I was. Um, Everybody, like I said, I think we're always the last to know, right? So most people know before we do. So. And I was really comfortable with that and fine. Like I didn't necessarily, I don't know, maybe it was just a blessing from God or whatever. Like I never had a problem because I'm still around a lot of alcohol, probably you too. Like yeah. that never stopped because the people in my life are still the people in my life. And so we go out, you know, my family, they all still do their thing. And so if that's fine. And, and I've been blessed with, it doesn't bother me. I know the tools that I need to do to take care of myself. I know how to protect myself if need be. I know how, you know, I know how to do all that. And luckily for me, like my first thought isn't like, I need a drink. Like that was removed from me very quickly. Um, but, but living sober as a mom and parenting sober, um, is sometimes really challenging. (laughs) 
Um, I found myself sometimes thinking like, what do other moms do? Like how to like, or I think about my own mom, like what, how did she do this? And, I, and I'm like, well, she drank and smoked, you know, like that's what they did. Right. Like they had that as their coping skill. Now I'm thankful that's not my coping skill today, but sometimes I'm like, good Lord, where's my resource? You know, we can pray and we can take Epsom salt baths and go to therapy and do the things, but like, dang, life hurts sometimes and kids hurt. And so that's where we are. You know, we're in the grips of parenting teenagers. And I do look ahead to the drinking culture on the campuses and in the kids. I work with a lot of teenagers and young people and I hear the stuff and it, it is, it is scary, you know, um, and our home has always been a safe place too. And they know we're so, that they know how, I, how I feel. They know, they know what we believe. Um, you know, I don't know if they'll embrace it. I have, I don't know, my oldest two are girls, so they're a little different. Um, <laughs> so far anyway so but anyway yeah i think it's, not, um, it's, a, it's a true journey right and it's uh -huh. a journey through alcohol and it's a journey figuring out and falling in love with yourself and living in your own skin right yeah. it's yeah. and that's the biggest part and the fact that you're helping people with the emdr i think that's amazing i have i know a lot of people that have done it and i know a lot of people that it has worked for i know people that use it to this day as a tool and I have a question for you. This is my new big question. How do you stay busy living sober? Um, well, things have changed a little yeah. in the past four or five months. We, I stayed busy living sober with a lot of really busy kids. You know, I've, they're 16, 15, and 12. They're heavily involved in their sports and activities. Um, I have two in high school. My other one's in middle school. Like, so we were really busy living sober, doing like club sports and traveling and um, doing the high school stuff and just a lot of, a lot of driving. <laughs> That's how I stay busy living sober in my car. Um, with the quarantine, it changed a lot because a lot of that stuff was taken away from us. And I'm not going to lie, in the beginning, it was a little weird. You know, like we went through a little bit of a... Um, I don't know if it was real depression, maybe low level, but just kind of a letdown, like a little bit of uh, sadness, loneliness, just thinking, what am I supposed to be doing? My life has really been tied up to these kids, you know, and our family. And so that was an adjustment. Um, now I think I'm just, um, try now we've loosened the reins a little. They see their friends and do some stuff. You know, we're trying to get back to life a little. Some of them have some sport activities. Their girls are working, you know, um, but it looks a lot different. Our weekends aren't as tied up, you know, so I'm busy living sober working during the week. I'm busy living sober online with my women in my community and my Facebook group and constantly trying to provide them with, you know, valuable content and be supportive. I created a membership program for them as well. It's going to be a launch, big launch in September. Super excited about that. Um, kind of talking a little bit about how to build that confidence and, um, emotional sobriety, like beyond recovery. So that's my main focus now is just helping women. I, I, you know, I don't really focus too much on like getting and staying sober because that's not my jam, but there's a lot of women that do do that work, but kind of coming in after and doing that, um, emotional sober work. Right. So that like, after you got like a closer to a year and beyond, you know, when we start having those sober bottoms, I don't know if you're familiar, that's the term I use, you know, I had my first sober bottom at four years sober. I didn't know that could happen. You know, I thought we got sober and everything was just going to be peachy and fine. And I found myself with these three kids crying on my back porch, you know, because I was like, what the hell? And it was, 
you know, the shit was hitting the fan. I didn't know how to live life on life's terms anymore. I didn't know how to stay sober and do this, do this thing. And I was four years sober working a program and all the things. So I try to get that message out there too. Nobody really talks about it. You know, like the, I mean, sometimes you hear like, Oh, life is hard or whatever, but like how hard can it really be? You know, it can get really hard. Well, and I, and I want to circle back to one thing you just said with this pandemic. Now, as I mentioned, my kids are like, I'm at that one stage right in front of you, right? Like I've got two are out of college and one's in college. You're my inspiration. (laughs) You can call me anytime. I tell people all the time, always reach out, reach out to busy anytime. I will answer your, you can call me. We'll talk everything else. I totally know how to navigate those waters because I, my kids all play sports and they all were very social, Mm -hmm. but here we are today living in this pandemic. Yeah. And you have been, and how are you? Cause like, are your kids going back to school? So um, we have three kids in three different schools, which is not ideal, but that's how it is right now. Um, so the public schools here in our County have no one's going back there. It's all online. The two that are in private schools, um, the youngest ones is a very tiny private school and they have said they are going back with whatever precautions the middle one is going to be a sophomore in high school. Her high school just yesterday, but we kind of were counting on them going back. I kind of felt like, oh, these private schools are going to, a lot of them in the, our area are going back, privates. And they just sent a message that said they're delaying their decision till closer to the start based on what the governor said about not reopening stuff or whatever. I'm not even, even sure. I was a little disappointed. I could, they're very disappointed. Um, I feel very sad for them. I don't know how to help them in a lot of ways because we've never experienced anything like this before, except for to talk about gratitude and you know how we carry on in adversity. You know, like we do a lot of that. Um, just try to support them emotionally. I had one that went through a very difficult time. The oldest one spiraled down very bad. You know, um, in in May and from March to May, and you know, so we've been dealing with that. Um, I, I don't know. It's weird. You know, both yeah. of us work from home. So that's a dynamic that's not at all easy. Um, when you have three kids in your house too, like they want to have friends, but like they have to be respectful of us working, you know, like, so it's, it's just new challenging and nobody's done the right answer. Right. Yeah. I feel like there's no right answer. I think that's one of the things like the, the rub that we have here sometimes between my husband and I sometimes is, he's like very logic based and like wants it to like line up and be in order. And like, there's so much more to it, the emotional side of things and just how there's no right answer. It's not a math problem. You know, you don't end with two plus two equals four and that's the solution. It's sometimes things are okay for some, sometimes things are not okay for others. It's been very challenging to navigate. We just try to take it one day at a time. We can't plan. So I just kind of stick it one week at a time. Like what are we doing this week? You know, where do people need to be? That's all we can do. And it's, it is so true what you said, because I think that there are so many, there are kids, right? There are kids and even mine that are big, you know, they have their own things. They can't go to the office. My son has to work from home. My daughter's trying to, she just graduated virtually. So that came with its own things, right? Like she didn't get to walk and have this beautiful ceremony and everybody celebrating her, which of course made her in some ways stomp her feet and be like, this. Right, right. 
And it's, and it's giving them the opportunity to share those things. So I commend you for getting through with your daughter because it is, and I think when we're drinking, we, we tend to like just go pick up that drink and then we can't hear what our children are saying to us, even adult children, because it becomes about us again, because we're selfish and self-centered to the core as alcoholics, right? That's the root of our problem. Right. And I think the challenge in speaking about parenting as a sober woman, and maybe you can relate to this, but like speaking about that specifically, I know that selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of my problem today. And I try to check myself regularly, you know, when the 10 step and the 12 and 12 talks about when we're disturbed, that there's something wrong with us. And I deeply believe that. And I find myself trying to do that quick inventory a lot to figure out, well, what's going on with me? What is bothering me about this? Why am I getting so activated? Um, but then when you have teenagers in your home who are naturally selfish and self-centered just because that's the way their brains are functioned at this point still, I feel as though that rub um, is for real, right? Like, and so then how do you, how do, so I say regularly here to, to the adults, like we have to stay in our adult brain. You know, we have a, we have a prefrontal cortex that is fully formed. They do not. And so we have to stay in our adult brain and slow ourselves down. I'm speaking for myself too. Like I have to slow myself down and like ask myself those questions. What am I afraid of? That's my favorite question because generally for me speaking, any activation is usually fear-based. What am I afraid of? What about this is bothering me? Um, can I change it? If so, how, how do I do that? Can, if I can't, how do I accept it? Like I do that quick inventory on a very, very probably daily basis sometimes because I feel like they're always coming at us with, can we do this? Can we do, can we do that? Can this person do that? You know, so I'm always making those quick decisions. But I think the, the, the battle between the selfish and self-centered sober alcoholic and the naturally self-centered teenagers is definitely a challenge. Oh yeah, and I think that sometimes we assume because they're in these big bodies and they look like a grown up mm -hmm. that their brains really aren't there. And I'm, and we're getting close to the end here and I'm just going to end with this quick story. So I have, I have a child that went, went to a party at one point mm -hmm. and at the party they were handing out handles of vodka. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's what they do today. Right. Good, bad, or different. I don't know. Good, bad, or different just happened. And he went and he was like, oh my gosh, they dropped, they gave out these handles of vodka and they were, were supposed to drink it. And I said, well, why didn't you go to the bathroom and you can pour it out because it looks just like water and fill it up with water. Mm -hmm. Now, a child who is 20, 21 years old has never experienced something like that. Now, because I'm 50, and I've been, I'm 51 now, actually, 51 and a half. I've been through these situations, right? Right. And so I knew, and he was like, I never thought of that. But how could they? Because they don't, it's, you know, <laughs> the reality is they can't, you don't, if you don't have the life experience, you don't have the life experience. And we expect them to have these, because you look like you're an adult, you should act like an adult, but their brain's like, but all I've been doing is really playing with Legos. And now you introduced me to girls or boys and all this other big stuff. Right. And I have no idea about. No. <laughs> I totally agree with that. And that is, that's just the, that is the definition of like, I think working with teenagers and the problem is, is you do look at them and then, the, and then the, the other, the other side is the disappointment. I don't know about for, for, for me and us, we, we just have been hurt so much. You know, I feel like our hearts get hurt broken regularly here. And, 
And that disappointment comes because you do look at them and you're like, well, dang, you look like you're 20, basically, and you're 16, which, so we know it, but like, so you're thinking like they make these really good decisions over here. You're like, oh, you're doing good in school. You're doing, you know, my old she has two jobs, you know, but like, then you're over here, like kind of still doing the things that are really not good for you and you don't get it. Like, so I don't know. They just don't, they don't have fully frontal developed, fully frontal lobes and they won't for 20, you know, until they're 25. Exactly. It's yeah. crazy. Well, it was such a pleasure to have you on. It was such a pleasure and let us know. I'll put the information on the website when you put, when you launch your new membership, sure. I, it sounds really interesting and a great tool for people that are out there. It sounds awesome. Thank you. I'm so excited about it. It's, it's come together really nicely. Everything's in there, just ready to launch. Well, it's really awesome, Shelby. And I'm so glad you reached out to me. I'm so glad we finally got this. We finally made it happen. And I, I know. And I'm thinking of you during these crazy times in the pandemic, you know, lots of good hugs and everything from afar. <laughs> and I really wish you all the best and please keep in touch. Will you? I will for sure. You have lots oh, of wisdom. Awesome. All right, everybody. Until next time, keep getting busy living sober. Bye-bye, everybody.